We all face adversity in our lives, and some, sadly, much more than others. Those moments, those losses, can have really powerful lessons buried deep within them if we simply take a second to hit the pause button and reflect on what exactly should be our next step. Today, you're going to hear from one of the most talented young men I have in my life. A series of injuries completely changed the trajectory of what should have been one of the most recognized NFL careers as a tight end. But the way he responded to those moments is what has him as another success story in a new field of media and commentating on the game of football that he grew up loving as a young boy in Pickerington, Ohio. Welcome to At The Podium. Hello again, and welcome to At The Podium. As all of you know, I'm Manuela Mesqua. I'm a financial advocate, a CEO, father, husband, and massive sports fan. I'm obsessed with encouraging people to dream and attack the unique vision they have for their life. We launched this show to share the stories of some of the highest performers in my life who will share their wins, losses, and those lessons along the way to help you take away some of that gold and continue to attack the vision that you have for yours. Today, my guest is Jake Butt, native of Pickerington, Ohio. Jake signed his letter of intent to play the game of football at the University of Michigan, the big house. He is one of the most decorated tight ends to come out of that program in decades. And Jake devoted his entire life leading up through college to get to the NFL. A series of injuries adjusted the trajectory of his career. But I got to tell you, this guy represents everything that we're trying to instill in our children today to be incredible athletes, to have a ton of grit and resiliency. And Jake does it at such a high level. I loved hearing Jake share those stories and those moments of adversity and the way he converted those into lessons and things he could take away to continue to pursue greatness in everything he does personally and professionally. I know you're going to find a ton of value in today's conversation with Jake Bob. Jake, it's great having you back in your college home state of Michigan. Welcome back. You're in Chicago now. You hauled all the way from my hometown of Chicago to be here with us today at the podium. I'd do anything for you, Manny. I'm curious, though, because I've been to some of your events, a lot of green and white. Are we breaking barriers? Am I the first Michigan guy to come on your podcast? You're the second. second. Woodley. All right. All right. Woods. Woodley's Lamar a good Woodley. one. I'll, I will be two to Lamar Woodley, but it's good to see you, man. I love it. I'm cracking up because I told Jill, I was like, how the hell did I not think to order that Michigan helmet? I should have brought one. We're going to fix that though. All right. I got you. That's it. So (laughs) I knew the Michigan State thing would come up today. Has to, right? (laughs) And I just had Coach Tucker. So even more. So love having you here. Obviously, we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of years. Incredible story. I'm really excited to dig in and unpack. I want to start off with your childhood. And really think back, dig deep to growing up in Pickerington, Ohio. 
What is one of your fondest memories, sports or non-sports related, that you can think about growing up in Ohio? It's not one specific memory, but what I liked, and now that I'm engaged, where I want to go in life, it's crazy how I want to model my future based off my childhood. I was very lucky. It was me and my two twin brothers younger. We lived in the very outskirts of Pickerington. We grew up on five acres. And both my parents worked, so it's not like I could walk down the street to my neighbor's house where my friends. So it was just me and my brothers and five acres. And this was before social media, cell phones. My parents didn't let us watch TV or play video games. So what I just remember as a kid is pretty much competition and everything. Basketball until we couldn't anymore, then soccer and then football, and then we'd wrestle and we'd fight and we'd argue and then we'd hug and make up. And that was pretty much my entire childhood is me and my siblings just pushing each other and having fun competing. I love that. Talk to me about when that energy got really dialed in and focused on football. The funny thing is, is I was a soccer player growing up and a basketball player. I didn't start football till sixth grade. I vividly remember the day when my dad picked me up from school and was driving me home. And he was like, Hey, you're going to play football this fall. And I literally started crying at that point. I'm like, no, I'm not. I wanted to go play soccer in Europe. I wanted to go play in UEFA and go see where I could take it. I was a pretty good soccer player at the time. And I actually didn't like some of the guys in the school that were football players. I was like, I don't want to be like those guys. I want to pave my own path. And he was like, no, you're going to do this and we'll play soccer in the spring. So it was football, fall, basketball, winter, soccer in the spring. I remember that first year, it's sixth grade, it's middle school. So they divided you up by weight classes and 125 pounds was the cutoff. If you wanted to carry the ball, you had to be below 125. And I was like 130. And my dad had me cutting weight and I was on vacation. I couldn't eat. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing? Like football sucks. Cutting weight at 12. Cutting weight at 12, right? That's my dad though. We're going to find a way to compete. So I get in there and I'm playing offensive guard. I was playing offensive line. And if I stuck with offensive line, the story would have ended there. So I'm playing offensive guard and they would move me out to tight end. And I caught my first pass down the middle of the field up between a couple guys. And that feeling I got in my stomach of like aliveness and bliss and catching the pass and getting hit and hearing the people in the stands go like, whoa, you know, the oohs and the ahs. I was like, I want to do more of that. And eventually they moved me out to full-time tight end. And it pretty much just took off from there where I was like, okay, let me see how far I can take this. Were your younger brothers playing football with you as well? They started, so they're two grades behind me. So I was in sixth grade. They were in fourth grade. They picked up football in fourth grade. So I kind of paved the road for them. But in the backyard, man, that's all we did is we were playing one-on-one, crazy catch game, whatever it was to compete. Of the Butt brothers, who was the most talented? Am I allowed to say me? I'm going to call your mom. I'm her firstborn, so maybe don't call her. Call my dad. (laughs) Who was the best basketball player of the three of you? I was. Here's a funny thing, though, because it's easy for me to say that that was always the case, but this is a big part of my story because I was not a good basketball player. And there's a specific moment in my life that's pretty much burned into my head. I started playing basketball second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I was tall. I was always tall, but I wasn't always a good basketball player. And I remember being at a tournament at that. It was travel basketball. You'd go play a tournament, play 10 games in a weekend, and that was it. And I was great in defense and great at getting rebounds, but I didn't know how to use my size. I was a little bit awkward. And there was one specific moment where I got a rebound and I went to shoot the layup. 
And I shoot the ball and it goes completely over the backboard and out of bounds. <laughs> and the opposing team is literally laughing. And as I'm walking off the court, I overhear them making fun of me. And this was the first instance where I felt that fire in my gut. I went home and we had Hakeem Olajuwon tape on DVD. My dad was like, why don't we just watch this? And we watched it and it was pouring rain outside in my driveway. And I was so pissed off that people were laughing at me. And I vowed to say that's never going to happen again. And I sat out there in the rain and I mimicked Hakeem Olajuwon's post moves in sixth grade. That next year in basketball, I was averaging like 20 and 10 points, completely effortless, a complete pivot in my life from basketball. And that started the journey of like, my mind will take me where I need to go. The fact that you can so clearly recall these moments just really says a lot about your ability to connect back to a moment and take a lesson from it, whether it was a win or a loss, it's really special, like really unique. Most people don't hit the pause button to reflect on what just happened here. Where do you think you got that from as you think about your childhood, your parents and other people who may have influenced who you've become to today? I can tell you for sure it was my dad from a very young age, like probably to the point where most parents would be like, is this guy serious? His son's in second grade. Why is he talking to him like this? We'd be playing soccer and in soccer. Sure, the goal is the end point. But what about when the ball's in the middle of the grass and my dad used to call them 50-50 balls? Those aren't necessarily about skill. It's about who wants it more. And I remember second and third grade, we were an average team, good, not great. And I still was awkward in my body and wasn't winning these 50-50 balls. And I'd sit in the back of his car going home from tournaments and he'd be like, hey, Jake, like those 50-50 balls. You need to say, that's my damn ball. That's my damn ball. That was his phrase that he would always say. And then I'd hear him yelling from the stands. And that was a great approach of just like taking ownership. If there's a 50-50 ball, I'm attacking it with the full expectation that I'm going to win it. It helped me in 50-50 balls in football, getting rebounds in basketball, not blinking and taking great ownership. That was really hammered into me from my dad. I mean, I hope to do that for my kids one day when I'm a dad, but that was hammered into me and emphasized from a very young age. I love that you say that I speak to Avon Atlas always about the fact that the war is one in the mind first. So we've got to put in the mental reps into visualizing what outcomes we expect, whether it's a play, it's a series, it's a half, or it's the entire game. You've got to take time to feed your brain what you will do in those moments. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like your dad has done that masterfully. What you're saying right now is a principle that I am trying to just live by on a daily basis because it's human nature to emphasize the negative. If something negative happens, we have to remember it so we can avoid it. You have to overcome that. You have to transcend that. And why would I not sit here and try to visualize the highest possible outcome in everything I do and then take action to strive towards that? It's passive to sit here and say, What if this thing bad happens? What if this thing bad happens? That doesn't serve me on my path towards trying to achieve great things in life. But if I can sit here and be proactive and journal and visualize and meditate on the highest possible outcome, it's amazing how things just fall into place. A big part of my story in my sports career was injuries. And as we just talked about my childhood, leading up till college, my entire childhood was building this steel trap of a mind, like an impenetrable wall. Like I was a hard dude. 
I could take my mind to some crazy, crazy places. And it served me really well. And then my first ACL happens. And that was the first time I was like brought back to earth, like, oh, wait, I'm a human being. But then I recovered from that ACL in six months. And the doctors were like, that's the quickest I've ever seen anybody recover from an ACL is a remarkable recovery. So then I'm back to being invincible. Then I tore my ACL in the bowl game. So I'm just getting tossed around all of a sudden in life. Everything had worked out in my favor up until this point, and then injuries happened. My identity was being this dependable guy that you could always count on to now my identity is the injured guy. I'm the guy in the training room, the guy that I used to be like, I never want to be like that guy. And to wrap this all up back to meditation and journaling, at some point I was like, which one am I? Because I've lived as this and I've lived as this. Which one am I? I haven't changed. These external circumstances have changed. And I had to find tools to say, let me get this ship steered right back in the right direction. Because I had a choice to make. I can identify with being the injured guy. I can identify with having a failed NFL career. Or I got a whole another 60, 70 years of my life, hopefully. I can use these challenges as fuel to push me to higher moments. And meditation and visualization has been a big part of that. Journaling, you know, that internal voice we all have, that internal voice that says, hey, don't do that. What if you fail? What if you look silly? What if you mess up? What if you make a mistake? That keeps us stuck. And I found I have to be very proactive, whether it's putting pen to paper, whether it's meditation or journaling to ensure that I'm always moving forward and trying to grow towards something special. There's so much gold in that. I want to take a step back into high school and your transition into college. Coming out of Ohio, senior year, a ton of press, a ton of stars, a ton of recognition, a ton of great energy around you. Division one, first team, you're being recognized nationally. You're invited to the Army All-American game. What were the things that were going on in your mind as you were considering all of the different places that you could play football? I don't even know that at that age, I fully even grasped what was going on. But I grew up 15 minutes from campus in Ohio State. I grew up as a diehard Buckeye fan. My basement was decked out in scarlet and gray, and I'm getting offers from everyone. Another piece of this is there's a director of player personnel for each football team. That guy for Ohio State was Greg Gillum. Greg Gillum's son was a guy by the name of Tanner Gillum, who I went from seventh grade all the way through high school together. We played football and basketball on the same team. I knew the Gillums. They were right down the street from me. I've spent time in their house. I could not believe in a million years how Ohio State was not offering me. And there's this slow thing where it's like, okay, are they going to offer me? Are they going to offer me? They're not going to offer me. And another principle is, I've been given the gift of rejection. Rejection didn't happen to me. Well, I'm going to go hide in the corner. I've been given the gift of rejection because football is hard. And I need to tap into something when things get hard to elevate my game. They didn't want me. I'm going to prove them wrong. What do you think was happening as to why you didn't get an offer then from Ohio State? I mean, I was a skinny guy. I wasn't a 240 pound, four foot, four, five, 40 tight end. Like I knew I was going to be a good tight end, but I wasn't the prototypical perfect tight end coming out. And I think Ohio State was looking at it saying, all right, we know if we offer Jake, he'll commit right away. So let's look other places, see if we can get something better. We'll offer him late, but that's not the way I work. I'm not about to be your second option. I'm going to go where I'm wanted and I'm going to make you regret it because I know who I am to begin with. And you did. And I did. Yeah. (laughs) And I went to the team up north in like Michigan. Again, it's just crazy how things work 
where it seems chaotic in the moment, but they work out perfectly with the scale of time when you have the perspective. You chose Michigan. You had a lot of options. What was the other school that was still kind of right up there that you were really, really, really deliberating around? My grandfather played at Notre Dame. So I was going to go to Notre Dame. And Notre Dame's a rival of Michigan as well. But there was a tight end coach that was a tight end coach at Notre Dame that went to Michigan. And this is between my sophomore and junior year, which are the big recruiting years. I don't know what it was. This guy must have had it out for me. He didn't watch my tape, didn't recruit me to Notre Dame. Then he goes to Ohio State, didn't recruit me. Just a side story. If I ask my dad for money, he's like, you're capable, go make money. So what I would do is I'd (laughs) knock on people's doors and ask to mow their lawn. So I'd go and I was knocking on this one lady's door and I'm mowing her lawn, beautiful yard. And then one day this black Tahoe pulls up and out walks the tight end coach from Notre Dame. And I'm not going to say his name, but I'm like, coach, like, how's it, is this not the exact guy? I'm in my football pants because I would go straight from practice. That way I didn't have to shower twice. And I'm mowing his lawn and he didn't want me. So the two schools I wanted to go to wanted nothing to do with me. The one school I didn't think in a million years I was ever going to go to worked out like almost in divine perfection to welcome me. And it worked out literally flawlessly. Who was the difference maker for you on the coaching staff back then that when you went to visit, when you were thinking about that final decision to make the commitment to Michigan, who was the key person on that staff that at that time made a difference? And what was it about that person that did so? It wasn't one person. It would start with Brady Hoke as the head coach. And my tight end coach was Dan Farino. They were masterful in the recruiting. Michigan is a high-level academic institution. There's a massive alumni network. It's, of course, a big brand. I knew I was going to play in the biggest games on the major networks and have a chance to prove myself. But when I went on campus, there was just a feeling that, oh, this is family. I like to be around these guys. They knew my parents by the first name and would shake our hands and greet us. I visited Notre Dame for a camp, told them what time I was going to be there, called the coaches for an hour, no one answered, and we're just sitting there waiting. That to me is a little bit disrespectful. That never happened at Michigan. They treated everybody world-class. And I'm like, you know what? That's the person I want to be. That's a person I want to be around. And it's funny, over that big year, again, I started the year thinking I was not going to go to Michigan. By the end, I was absolutely certain Michigan was the best place for me. I'm a huge fan of our friends at Sport of Kings out in LA. And as a listener of this show, you've got to check them out. Sport of Kings is an LA-based clothing brand that was started by two surfers and longtime friends. The story's incredible. They carry a wide range of premium tees, hoodies, sweats, caps, and more. And they're designed in-house folks made locally in Los Angeles and Orange County. Samantha and Ava and Atlas say, Dad, you're either in a blue suit and white shirt or Sport of Kings. And they're right. That's about it. Don't forget, Sport of Kings is a homegrown brand focused on quality over quantity. And if you go check them out online at S-O-K-F-Y. So basically, Sport of Kings Forever Young, S-O-K-F-Y.com and use the promo code PODIUM. You'll receive 20% off your entire order. Again, that's SOKFY.com and use the promo code PODIUM at checkout for 20% off. And now back to the show. You had some incredible teammates 
who would you say was the person that you looked up to the most in that locker room that just was consistently a professional? There's a large number of guys that I could think of. One guy that he wasn't my teammate specifically, but he was a tight end that played right before me, Kevin Coger. He was like our graduate assistant coach. And I'd watch film of him and he was always involved. Just a rock solid guy and did everything right, did everything by the book and had finished playing at Michigan. So I got to watch him play and I knew as a early enrollee freshman, I'm like, that's where I'm trying to go. I want to be like Kevin Coger one day. So I'd always talk to him about culture, about team. Hey, I'm a freshman, but what can I do to help? We weren't winning. I was like, what can I do to help us win? He was a huge impact. He probably doesn't even know how big of an impact he was, but he was a huge impact in helping me learn the nuance of the position and just do everything right. You know, take this game really, really seriously. I was really lucky to have great roommates too in college where we would push each other. I'm running and I'm looking to my right and there's Ben Gideon, a a guy that I played, a linebacker. I see him out of my peripheral and he's pushing a little bit further. So then I push a little bit further. It's just little things like that that I remember of just the culture of the team in general, of us wanting to push one another so we can reach our full potential. It's cliche, but it's really true. Some of the hardest workers that you can recall. Ben's definitely one that stands out. When he came on campus, he was 18 years old. We'd do like a mock combine. Ben was a true freshman. He put up two, 225. He put it up 25 times. It would have been fifth best at the combine as an 18-year-old. I always had respect for like the fullbacks and the D linemen, like Sione Homa, Fitzgerald Toussaint was another oh, yeah. guy, just did everything right. And oftentimes, the hardest working guys, the guys I had the most respect for would be the guys on the scout team. You don't know their name. You, you don't know their story. They get no recognition, but they're if effectively like a punching bag to help the team work out. They're out there getting beaten, bruised. It's a thankless job. They only get yelled at, and they're the ones that are the gel of the team. Can you think back to a time where you're like, I can't even believe this is real. I can't even believe that this is really my life right now. It was when Brady hoax last year is the transition between Brady and Jim. And we had went five and seven under Brady and he got fired. And you're supposed to be at a bowl game during Christmas. And I was at home with my family for Christmas. And great to see my family. I love them. I want to play in the big bowl games. So that was a tough moment. And we just had such a talented team and we're underperforming. And in comes Jim Harbaugh. And that first spring ball, he made it as hard as possible. There's NCAA rules, so the maximum you were allowed in the building on any given day was four hours. So most teams would break it up an hour and a half of meetings, two and a half hours of practice. That's cool. You can get a lot done. Jim said, well, if you want to get better at playing football, you play football. So that entire four hours, we practiced. And I just remember Coach Harbaugh calling us up about five practices in because guys were complaining like, oh man, this guy's crazy. What is this for? And he's like, listen, you guys, there's a hundred of you. I don't need 100 of you. I need 30 of you. I need 11 on offense, 11 on defense, and then we'll shuffle some guys in for depth and special teams. And I could just look around and I knew who those guys were going to be. And it had been such a frustrating time at Michigan up into that point. We were seven and six. We were five and seven. We were the laughing stock of the Big Ten. At that moment, there was a belief seed planted inside of me. All right, we're going to get this thing back on track. We're going to start winning ballgames again. And it's not going to be easy and great, good. 
we're going to win ball games. That's the goal anyways. I love that. I can still pretty well recall those seasons. I remember when the energy and the tonality and the excitement for Michigan football began to shift back. You had two incredible final seasons at Michigan. A ton of honors. 2015 All-American First Team SI and CBS Sports. 2015 Aussie Newsome Tight End of the Year. 2015 All-American Second Team AP and Sporting News. 2016 Senior Class Award winner. John Mackey Award winner as a nation's top tight end. And All-Big Ten honoree. That was exciting. I remember that first spring ball with Coach Harbaugh. And this is where like a switch was flipped because my sophomore year, I was coming back from my first ACL. I made like ESPN freshman all Big Ten. I was like, all right, I can be a good tight end. I didn't really know how good. But when Jim got hired, I was like, there's one thing I know about Jim Harbaugh. He produces tight ends. So I knew there was an opportunity in front of me. And that spring ball, I started to see this opportunity. I was like, I can take this thing really, really high. And I remember I was just starting to date my fiance at the time, Natalie, and I'd go over to her house. And like every night I was just banging out push-ups, sit-ups, like speaking belief of, I want to be all Big Ten. I think I can be all American. I want to make that happen. And I can look back at that moment of just like this fire and this energy, like cellular energy, like a fire that never burned out. And then it all culminates a cool story to even put a bow on going back to Columbus, Ohio. I won the Mackey Award. So we have to go down to the college football (laughs) award show. And that's a Thursday night in Atlanta. So we fly down, me, Jordan Lewis, and Jabril Peppers. Good company for sure. So we fly down to Atlanta, do the award show Thursday night. I get the Mackie and then they say, hey, be in the lobby at 7 a.m. We got to catch a shuttle to the airport. So I get there at 6.45, a little bit early, and there's only two other people in the lobby. There's the clerk and then there's Urban Meyer. And Urban was the coach that decided not to offer me. Urban was also the coach who I lost to twice in a row. I never met him or interacted with him face to face. So I see Urban and he sees me and we both know each other. I'm like, coach, how's it going? Go post up against the wall. I'm a sweaty guy in general. And I like beads of sweat of like frustration (laughs) and like competitiveness. And it's one of those moments, like I remember the smell of the coffee in the lobby. It was just such an intense moment because I always wanted to beat him. I didn't get to beat him. He still has my respects as a coach, but almost instantaneously, he walks right up over to me. He's one of those winners that just carries a gravity about him. He puts his face like right in my chest and he looks up at me and he's like, why didn't you come to Ohio State? I'm like, coach, you didn't offer me. He's like, what was it? Did you get in trouble? I'm like, no, man, I never got in trouble. He's like, were you a bad student? I'm like, I got into Michigan. I was a good student. He's like, listen, I get on our staff's ass about you all the time. You are a heck, heck of a ball player and you used to give me nightmares. Like, congratulations, you're going to do great things. And it was just like... Even though I didn't beat him, I would have traded everything you just mentioned for one win over Ohio State. But to get the respect of your peers, that's one of the ultimate reasons anyone would play the game is for the respect of those around you. And Urban has had so much success everywhere he's been as a coach. To get that respect from him, uh, you know, that's something I'll always take with me. I love that. It's just such a great example of acknowledging something that's been painful for you to have to accept that you'll never get to go back and rewrite that story against Ohio State, where you dreamt of going as a child. And yet still, the fact that he acknowledged the amount of respect that his organization had every time they lined up against you, that's what you took away as 
something that brings you maybe some closure. I will never be happy that I didn't beat Ohio State. All right. There's no sugarcoating that. I'll never be happy. But I also recognize I can't change the past. I also recognize I have to forge on anyway. No one's singing a sad song for me because that never happened. And to get the respect from Urban, that is a win in its own right. We've got to go to this next point. I forgot until we reconnected that I was actually watching the game when you got hurt your senior year in the Orange Bowl. That was the moment I would say like pretty much my life changed, I would say. The year prior, Jalen Smith had gotten injured in the bowl game and he slipped. And that year, Christian McCaffrey sat out, Leonard Fournette sat out. And in the lead up to the game, I got like really sick, like 103 degree fever. I didn't practice other than the day before the game, which was a walkthrough. I was in the hospital getting IVs. And I remember my OC coming to check on me and looking at me. And he didn't say it, but I knew what he was going to say. Like, do you think you could play? And before he said it, I was like, coach, I'm playing. At that time, I'd been elected captain. It was the last game of my career at Michigan. I'll never take for granted a chance to play the game. So I said I was going to play. Once again, it's funny. The play I got injured on, I caught a pass. I didn't have a route. It was a boot to the right, and I had a step hinge on the backside. So the quarterback's rolling out to the right. It's a two-man route concept, and all I'm doing is just holding it down on the backside, blocking the D end. Wilton Spate was the quarterback. He starts rolling back towards me. I didn't have anyone to block, so I leaked into the flat. Nice, great. I caught a pass, and I didn't even have it around. I'm running down the sideline. I stiff arm a guy, spin off him, and then bang. As soon as my cleat hits the ground, Trey Marshall, the safety, who's an explosive guy. I played with him in Denver. Full speed shoulder pad right into my knee. It bent at like a 90 degree angle. I remember hearing the pop. Then your leg goes numb. This was the same one I tore, so it was the second time. And then I just remember hearing 80,000 people be dead silent. When I remember the trainers coming out and there's a Lockman test they do for an ACL. And there was nothing there. And they picked me up and I'd been down for a while. I knew my mom was crying in the stands. I gave her a thumbs up. And then as I'm getting back to the training room, I got some adrenaline in me and I started to jog a little bit. And I was like, oh man, they're going to clear me to go back out there. and I'm going to look like the softest dude on the planet because I thought I was going to be good to go. And as soon as I got back to the training room, I told the trainers, I was like, hey, I think I'm actually good to go back in. And they're like, man, no, you tore your ACL. Like you can't go. And immediately, wow, I I was projected to be a first, second round pick, Mm -hmm. millions of dollars, you know, second ACL, way harder than the first. That's what they say. Each one's harder. So will my career ever come back? You know, what does my future look like? Everything leading up to this point was now at jeopardy. And again, I talk about a bulletproof mindset. At that point, there was a little bit of leaks. There were some doubts that started to creep in. It was my first exposure to that, really. Had a successful surgery. Still was drafted. I came back. I didn't play my rookie year, but I rehabbed it. And I came back for OTAs in Denver the next year, and it was the best shape I'd ever been in. I was rolling. I was feeling great. I was making plays. I'm lining up across from Chris Harris, Akib Talib. I'm earning their respect, and I get the chance to match up against them, and then I'm beating them. And I'm having these thoughts like, wait a second, man. You kind of surprise yourself. I can play in this league. I remember the OC at the time, they have the play sheet where it's all 100 plays on the front. And then on the back, it's not plays, it's players. Demarius Thomas, rest in peace. He had 10 plays. Here's how we're going to get DT the ball. Emmanuel Sanders, stud. Here's how we get E the ball. 
I had my own thing in there. Here's how we're going to get Jake the ball. And I was like, all right, man, this ACL is behind me. I'm back to being invincible. Week four, we're playing Kansas City on Monday night in Arrowhead. The previous week, we played at Baltimore. I had one catch for five yards, didn't get involved in the game plan. So this week, it was like, hey, we're going to get you involved. They had me running like a fade in the, the red zone, digs and goes, slants and goes. So I'm fired up. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to outplay Travis Kelsey on Monday night in Arrowhead. I'm going to put myself on the map. We had just finished warming up. I'm running down on scout team kickoff. Could have just jogged, but I was doing my job and giving him a good look. And we had two practice fields. We'd been practicing on the right practice field. This day, we're practicing on the left practice field. Our quarterback coach at the time, as we're warming up, says, I don't like this field. There's something about it. And I might have forgot it if this didn't happen. As I'm running down there, I go to plant. I just rehabbed for 18 months, my second ACL. I'm just finally getting back. I'm ready to put myself on the map. I cut and my left cleat just gave slightly way in the ground. My knee bends in, pop, bang, tore it again. And you know it for the most part. I knew it. I was like, damn shit, man. Shoot. You know, again, I was a bulletproof dude. The previous ACLs, I cried every time, but like I cried for 24 hours and then it's onward. You know, let's move on. That one pretty much broke me. I was like, something's actually wrong. I went back to the locker room. I slammed my helmet down. I just looked up at the sky. I was like, why, why, why? That one took me to a place and it had me questioning everything. It had me questioning who I was, what I was capable of. Slightly overcame it, but not fully. And I got cleared and I was like, still like, maybe this happens. Maybe it doesn't. They say three ACLs and you're done. So I asked the doctor that and he looked down on the ground, didn't answer it. I get cleared. The next day is camp day one, camp day two. I re-tear both my meniscus. And like that entire camp, I went from a week of not being able to walk to a week of like, let me just go and see what happens. And then a week of not being able to walk and let me just go. There was a certain point where I was just like, please like cut me so I don't have to quit. Like cut me, just get this over with. They didn't cut me. But it was those moments where I just was taken to a place of low lows that I was completely unfamiliar with and had to find a way to claw myself back out of that. I appreciate the fact that you were willing to go so deep on something that's so raw still and for your willingness to be vulnerable. There's a reason they didn't cut you. You were still that kid from Pickerington, Ohio that watches an Akeem Olajuwon tape with an unflinching amount of obsession to get better and to never be laughed at again. And I think there's something to be said about a team, especially like the Broncos were in that season of their life, that they knew who you were as a young man, as a competitor, as an athlete. And what Benny said the first time he introduced us, which is you're one of the best teammates he ever had, just a consummate pro that knew what it was like to be a great teammate. You know, the crazy thing is, though, and I'm okay being vulnerable because I think it's part of a human story. You know what I mean? I didn't feel like that. I did. And then when these happened, I felt like a fraud going to meetings. I felt like I was just a guy just taking money from the NFL because I couldn't stay healthy and I couldn't be on the field. And it's crazy to see the difference in the mindset. But again, that's where, in a sense, the worst things to happen to you then with time and perspective become the best things to happen to you. Mm -hmm. Because at some point I had to start saying, if I can pull myself out of this, then what can I do in life? Mm -hmm. If I can figure out a way to get back on track, then who can stop me? 
And in order to come to that realization, you have to experience a deep challenge. If you're not challenged, how can you really possibly know how strong you are? So in a sense, it was a great gift for me to say, you know what, I'm going to overcome this, even though I'm done playing the game of football, can I still go achieve something great outside of the game of football? And because I was able to pull myself out from dark times, I feel as though I can truly do anything. And you said when you retired in 2021, football gave me some of the best times of my life. Ironically, it also gave me some of my toughest times, which turned out to be the most important. The adversity that I faced in my career gave me some of the biggest opportunities to grow as a man. Your folks had to be proud. That's the way I was raised. And that quote, that's it. You know, that's life. Sure, it's football, but it's the principle underlying that, like, if I can live by that mindset on a day-to-day basis, how could I possibly lose? Because even the worst things that happen to me, I have said to myself, they will work in my favor. They will allow me to grow. So then I can't lose. And it goes exactly back to what you just said. Yes, my dad raised that from me when I was a little kid. And then life experience is the greatest teacher and, and emphasizer. So you brought closure to that chapter of your professional career? And today, you're kind of one of the hottest young stars. I think I texted you the one time I was watching you. I was like, this guy was literally built for the TV. You're a football analyst with the Big Ten Network. That first year was a lot of fun for you. Can you share a little bit about some of the highs and some of the lows becoming a commentator now on TV? When I retired, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I didn't think I wanted to get into media. Big Ten asked me to call the spring game and I told him no. I was like, I don't think so. I was like, I don't want to get into sports media. And then as I thought about it, I'm like, let me just try it. And if I hate it, that's equally as valuable. So I called the spring game. I was so nervous, so nervous. I completely overprepared. I'm calling the producer constantly. I'm calling my play-by-play guy, Brandon God. And they're like, dude, it's a spring game. Just go talk football. I had to visualize the highest outcome. I was super nervous. I hadn't done live TV like that ever in my life. And it went great. And the pressure of that moment allowed me to get a great reward at the end of it. I was like, wow, you know, this can be something. And my producer called me after the game and he said, hey, man, I don't want to tell you what to do. I know you're kind of on the fence about this career. He's like, but that went really, really well. For that to be your first spring game, he's like, I think you should consider this as a career. And he spoke some belief into me. I'm like, let me see where this goes. And obviously signed with the Big Ten. Such a joy to cover the conference that I played in, the coaches that I know, like I was in those guys' shoes. So it's just amazing to see it from another perspective. And calling games, I remember watching games as a kid. A lot of people have much tougher jobs than what I do. And that's their outlet on the weekend to go watch their team, their coaches, their players compete. And I get a chance to entertain them and tell the stories of the team. What a great gift. It really doesn't feel like work. What a gift. What a gift you have, though, too, that you're able to articulate the game of football to folks who are just absolutely obsessed about it and that you get to share those stories. I, and I do think it's really cool that you're calling it in the conference that you played in so yeah. passionately. A gift is really the perfect word for it. I don't feel like I work. I'm calling the spring game this weekend and I'm going to go hang out with the coaches. Like these are guys I know. 
It's also what I know because it's very similar to playing in that sense. And I certainly don't take it for granted. And my goal each week is just do right by the players and the fans and, and help tell a cool story. What's next? Just like anything is, let me see where I can take this. And let me just try to be the best at this today that I can be. And I would bet over five, 10 years where this can go is astronomical. The investment into the space is really, really high. Live sports are as valuable as they've ever been. Football is extremely valuable. So the timing of it has worked out great. And the chance to grow in this space and call even bigger and bigger games, it's really, really exciting. I want our listeners to take this away from Jake's story, an unflinching level of commitment to what you said you would do. And you consistently set the standard so high that your commitment was always to be excellent, to perform at the highest level. You're definitely one of the most ferocious competitors that I visited with in recent years. Every guy that played with you, whether it was in college or the pros has said that. Mo Ways sent you a ton of love on a call I had with him two weeks ago. I also just love the fact that you have a level of maturity and had that at such a young age to know what it meant to be a man of character, integrity, and commitment. And as we dove deeper over the last couple of years of getting to know each other, it's just no surprise because everything online says that, everybody you've played with says that, and to experience you firsthand and open up a little bit deeper today, it's exactly how I feel. And only you would be crazy enough to drive five hours from Chicago to come and honor a commitment you made verbally. And so that means a lot to me. Of course, man. Well, it's good to see you and I appreciate it. And I'm excited to see how this thing turns out. Yeah, it was great to be with you. Congratulations again to you and Natalie. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to my guest, Jake Butt. Connect with Jake on Twitter and Instagram at jbooty. That's B-O-O-T-Y 80, 80, jbooty80. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to follow, rate, and review our program on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the show on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, at podium underscore podcast. Post about the show on social media. Tag us. We'll reshare your post to demonstrate our gratitude. And look, please also consider telling a friend. Friend to friend is still the best way to get the word out about our conversations and our podcast. And I'll see you next time.